Chapter Ten of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Bascom. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter Ten The Heath and the Hut. Letty seldom went into the shop except to buy, for she knew Mr. Turnbull would not like it, and Mary did not encourage it. But now her misery made her bold. Mary saw the trouble in her eyes, and without a moment's hesitation drew her inside the counter, and thence into the house, where she led the way to her own room, upstairs and through passages which were indeed lanes through masses of merchandise, like those cut through deep-drifted snow. It was shop all over the house, till they came to the door of Mary's chamber, which, opening from such surroundings, had upon Letty much the effect of a chapel, and rightly, for it was a room not unused to having its door shut. It was small, and plainly but daintily furnished, with no foolish excess of the small refinements on which girls so often set value, spending large time on what it would be waste to buy. Only they have to kill the weary captive they know not how to redeem, for he troubles them with his moans. "'Sit down, Letty, dear, and tell me what is the matter,' said Mary, placing her friend in a chintz-covered straw chair and seating herself beside her. Letty burst into tears and sat sobbing. "'Come, dear, tell me all about it,' insisted Mary. "'If you don't make haste, they will be calling me.' Letty could not speak. "'Then I'll tell you what,' said Mary. "'You must stop with me to-night, that we may have time to talk it over. "'You sit here and amuse yourself as well as you can till the shop is shut, "'and then we shall have such a talk. "'I will send your tea up here. Beanie will be good to you.' "'Oh, but indeed I can't,' sobbed Letty. "'My aunt would never forgive me.' "'You silly child, I never meant to keep you without sending to your aunt to let her know.' "'She won't let me stop,' persisted Letty. "'We will try her,' said Mary confidently.' and, without more ado, left Letty, and, going to her desk in the shop, wrote a note to Mrs. Warder. This she gave to Beanie, to send by special messenger to Thornwick, after which, she told her, she must take up a nice tea to Miss Lovell in her bedroom. Mary then resumed her place in the shop, under the frowns and side-glances of Turnbull, and the smile of her father, pleased at her reappearance from even such a short absence. But the return, in an hour or so, of the boy-messenger, whom Beanie had taken care not to pay beforehand, destroyed the hope of a pleasant evening. For he brought a note from Mrs. Wardour, absolutely refusing to allow Letty to spend the night from home. She must return immediately, so as to get in before dark. The rare anger flushed Letty's cheek and flashed from her eyes as she read, for in addition to the prime annoyance, her aunt's note was addressed to her and not to Mary, to whom it did not even allude. Mary only smiled inwardly at this, but Letty felt deeply hurt, and her displeasure with her aunt added yet a shade to the dimness of her judgment. She rose at once. "'Will you not tell me what is troubling you, Letty?' said Mary. "'No, dear, not now,' replied Letty, caring a good deal less about the right ordering of her way than when she entered the house. Why should she care?' she said to herself, but it was her anger speaking in her. How she behaved when she was treated so abominably— "'Then I will come and see you on Sunday,' said Mary, "'and then we shall manage to have our talk.' They kissed and parted, Letty unaware that she had given her friend a less warm kiss than usual. 
there can hardly be a plainer proof of the lowness of our nature until we have laid hold of the higher nature that belongs to us by birthright than this that even a just anger tends to make us unjust and unkind letty was angry with every person and thing at thornwick and unkind to her best friend for whose sake in parting she was angry with glowing cheeks tear-filled eyes and indignant heart she set out on her walk home it was a still evening with a great cloud rising in the southwest from which as the sun drew near the horizon a thin veil stretched over the sky between and a few drops came scattering this was in harmony with letty's mood her soul was clouded and her heaven was only a place for the rain to fall from annoyance doubt her new sense of constraint and a wide-reaching undefined feeling of homelessness all wrought together to make her mind a chaos out of which misshapen things might rise instead of an ordered world in which gracious and reasonable shapes appear for as the place such will be the thoughts that spring there when all in us is peace divine then and not till then shall we think the absolutely reasonable alas that by our thoughtlessness or unkindness we should so often be the cause of monster births and those even in the minds of the loved that we should be if but for a moment the demons that deform a fair world that loves us such was mrs warder with her worldly wisdom that day to letty about halfway to thornwick the path crossed a little heathy common and just as letty left the hedge-guarded field-side and through a gate stepped as it were afresh out of doors on the open common the wind came with a burst and brought the rain in earnest it was not yet very heavy but heavy enough with the wind at its back and she with no defence but her parasol to wet her thoroughly before she could reach any shelter the nearest being a solitary decrepit old hawthorn tree about halfway across the common she bent her head to the blast and walked on she had no desire for shelter she would like to get wet to the skin take a violent cold go into a consumption and die in a fortnight the wind whistled about her bonnet dashed the raindrops clanging on the drum-tight silk of her parasol and made her skirts fetters and chains she could hardly get along and was just going to take down her parasol when suddenly where was neither house nor hedge nor tree came a lull for from behind over head and parasol had come an umbrella and now came a voice and an audible sigh of pleasure i little thought when i left home this afternoon said the voice that i should have such a happiness before night at the sound of the voice letty gave a cry which ran through all the shapes of alarm of surprise of delight and it was not much of a cry either oh tom she said and clasped the arm that held the umbrella how her foolish heart bounded here was help where she had sought none, and where least she had hoped for any. Her aunt would have run her from under the umbrella at once, no doubt, but she would do as she pleased this time. Here was Tom, getting as wet as a spaniel for her sake, and counting it a happiness. Oh, to have a friend like that, all to herself! She would not reject such a friend for all the aunts in creation. Besides, it was her aunt's own fault. If she had let her stay with Mary, she would not have met Tom. It was not her doing. She would take what was sent her and enjoy it. But, at the sound of her own voice calling him Tom, the blood rushed to her cheeks, and she felt their glow in the heart of the chill-beating rain. "'What a night for you to be out in, Letty,' responded Tom, taking instant advantage of the right she had given him. "'How lucky it was I chose the right place to watch in at last. I was sure, if only I persevered long enough, I should be rewarded.' 
"'Have you been waiting for me long?' asked Letty, with foolish acceptance. "'A fortnight and a day,' answered Tom, with a laugh. "'But I would wait a long year for such another chance as this.' And he pressed to his side the hand upon his arm. "'Fate is indeed kind to-night.' "'Hardly in the weather,' said Letty, fast recovering her spirits. "'Not,' said Tom, with seeming pretense of indignation. "'Let anyone but yourself dare to say a word against the weather of this night, and he will have me to reckon with. It's the sweetest weather I ever walked in. I will write a glorious song in praise of showery gusts and bare commons.' "'Do,' said Letty, careful not to say Tom this time, but unwilling to revert to Mr. Helmer, "'and mine you bring in the umbrella.' "'That I will. See if I don't,' answered Tom. "'And make it real poetry, too?' asked Letty, looking archly round the stick of the umbrella. "'Thou shalt thyself be the lovely critic, fair maiden,' answered Tom. And thus they were already on the footing of somewhere about two years' acquaintance, thanks to the smart of ill-usage in Letty's bosom, the gaiety in Tom's, the sudden wild weather, the quiet heath, the gathering shades, and the umbrella.' The wind blew cold, the air was dank and chill, the west was a low gleam of wet yellow, and the rain shot stinging in their faces, but Letty cared quite as little for it all as Tom did, for her heart, growing warm with the comfort of the friendly presence, felt like a banished soul that has found a world, and a joy as of endless deliverance pervaded her being. And neither to her nor to Tom must we deny our sympathy in the pleasure which, walking over a bog, they drew from the flowers that mantled awful deeps. They will not sink until they stop, and begin to build their house upon it. Within that umbrella hovered and glided with them an atmosphere of bliss and peace and rose odors. In the midst of storm and coming darkness it closed warm and genial around the pair. Tom meditated no guile, and Letty had no deceit in her. Yet was Tom no true man, or sweet Letty much of a woman. Neither of them was yet of the truth." At the other side of the heath, almost upon the path, stood a deserted hut. Door and window were gone, but the roof remained, just as they neared it the wind fell, and the rain began to come down in earnest. "'Let us go in here for a moment,' said Tom, "'and get our breath for a new fight.' Letty said nothing, but Tom felt she was reluctant. "'Not a soul will pass to-night,' he said. "'We mustn't get wet to the skin.' Letty felt, or fancied, refusal would be more unmaidenly than consent, and allowed Tom to lead her in. And there, within those dismal walls, the twilight sinking into a cheerless night of rain, encouraged by the very dreariness and obscurity of the place, she told Tom the trouble of her mind their interview at the oak was causing her, saying that now it would be worse than ever, for it was altogether impossible to confess that she had met him yet again that evening. So now, indeed, Letty's foot was in the snare. She had a secret with Tom. Every time she saw him, Liberty had withdrawn a pace. There was no room for confession now. If a secret held be a burden, a secret shared is a fetter. But Tom's heart rejoiced within him. "'Let me see. How old are you, Letty?' he asked gaily. Eighteen past,' she answered. "'Then you are fit to judge for yourself. You ain't a child, and they are not your father and mother.' "'What right have they to know everything you do? "'I wouldn't let any such nonsense trouble me.' "'But they give me everything you know, food and clothes and all.' "'Ah, just so,' returned Tom. "'And what do you do for them?' "'Nothing.' "'Why, what are you about all day?' Letty gave him a brief sketch of her day. "'And you call that nothing!' exclaimed Tom. "'Ain't that enough to pay for your food and your clothes? 
Does it want your private affairs to make up the difference? Or have you to pay for your food and clothes with your very thoughts? What pocket money do they give you? Pocket money? returned Letty, as if she did not quite know what he meant. Money to do what you like with, explained Tom. Letty thought for a moment. Cousin Godfrey gave me a sovereign last Christmas, she answered. I have got ten shillings of it yet. Tom burst into a merry laugh. Oh, you dear creature, he cried. What a sweet slave you make. The lowest servant on the farm gets wages and you get none, yet you think yourself bound to tell them everything because they give you food and clothes and a sovereign last Christmas. Here a gentle displeasure arose in the heart of the girl, hitherto so contented and grateful. She did not care about money, but she resented the claim her conscience made for them upon her confidence. She did not reflect that such claim had never been made by them, nor that the fact that she felt the claim proved that she had been treated, in some measure at least, like a daughter of the house. "'Why,' continued Tom, "'it is mere downright rank slavery. You are walking to the sound of your own chains. Of course, you are not to do anything wrong, but you are not bound not to do anything they may happen not to like.' In this style he went on, believing he spoke the truth, and was teaching her to show a proper spirit. His heart, as well as Godfrey's, was uplifted, to think that he had this lovely creature to direct and superintend. Through her sweet confidence he had set her free from unjust oppression, taking advantage of her simplicity. But in very truth he was giving her just the instruction that goes to make a slave, the slave in heart, who serves without devotion and serves unworthily. Yet in this, and much more, such poverty-stricken swine-husk argument, Letty seemed to hear a gospel of liberty, and scarcely needed the following injunctions of Tom to make a firm resolve not to utter a word concerning him. To do so would be treacherous to him, and would be to forfeit the liberty he had taught her. Thus, from the neglect of a real duty, she became the slave of a false one. "'If you do,' Tom had said, "'I shall never see you again. "'They will set every one about the place to watch you "'like so many cats after one poor little white mousy, "'and on the least suspicion, one way or another, "'you will be gobbled up, as sure as fate, "'before you can get me to take care of you.' "'Letty looked up at him gratefully. "'But what could you do for me if I did?' she asked. "'If my aunt were to turn me out of the house, "'your mother would not take me in.' "'Letty was not herself now.' She was herself and Tom, by no means a healthful combination. "'My mother won't be mistress long,' answered Tom. "'She will have to do as I bid her when I am one and twenty, and that will be in a few months.' Tom did not know the terms of his father's will. "'In the meantime we must keep quiet, you know. I don't want a row. We have plenty of row as it is. You may be sure I shall tell no one how I spent the happiest hour of my life. How little circumstance has to do with bliss,' he added, with a philosophical sigh. Here we are in a wretched hut, roared and rained upon by an equinoctial tempest, and I am in paradise. I must go home, said Letty, recalled to a sense of her situation, yet set trembling with pleasure by his words. See, it is getting quite dark. Don't be afraid, my white bird, said Tom. I will see you home. But surely you are as well here as there, anyhow. Who knows when we shall meet again? Don't be alarmed. I am not going to ask you to meet me anywhere. I know your sweet innocence would make you fancy it wrong, and then you would be unhappy. But that is no reason why I should not fall in love with you when I have the chance. It is very hard that two people who understand each other cannot be friends without other people shoving in their ugly beaks. Where is the harm to anyone if we choose to have a few minutes' talk together now and then? Where indeed, responded Letty shyly. A tall shadow, no shadow either, but the very person of Godfrey Wardour, passed the opening in the wall of the hut where once had been a window, and the gloom it cast into the dusk within was awful and ominous. 
The moment he saw it, Tom threw himself flat on the clay floor of the hut. Godfrey stopped at the doorless entrance, and stood on the threshold, bending his head to clear the lintel as he looked in. Letty's heart seemed to vanish from her body. A strange feeling shook her, as if some mysterious transformation were about to pass upon her whole frame, and she were about to be changed into some one of the lower animals. The question, where was the harm, late so triumphantly put, seemed to have no heart in it now. For a moment that had to Letty the air of an eon, Godfrey stood peering. Not a little to his displeasure, he heard from his mother of her refusal to grant Letty's request, and had set out in the hope of meeting and helping her home, for by that time it had begun to rain and looked stormy. In the darkness he saw something white, and, as he gazed, it grew to Letty's face. The strange, scared, ghastly expression of it bewildered him. Letty became aware that Godfrey did not recognize her at first, and the hope sprung up in her heart that he might not see Tom at all, but she could not utter a word, and stood returning Godfrey's gaze like one fascinated with terror. Presently her heart began again to bear witness in violent piston-strokes. "'Is it really you, my child?' said Godfrey in an uncertain voice. "'For, if it was indeed she, why did she not speak, and why did she look so scared at the sight of him?' "'Oh, cousin Godfrey!' gasped Letty. Then, first finding a little voice, you gave me such a start. Why should you be so startled at seeing me, Letty? he returned. Am I such a monster of the darkness, then? You came all at once, replied Letty, gathering courage from the playfulness of his tone, and blocked up the door with your shoulders, so that not a ray of light fell on your face, and how was I to know it was you, cousin Godfrey? From a paleness grayer than death, her face was now red as fire. It was the burning of the lie inside her. She felt all a lie now. There was the good that Tom had brought her. But the gloom was friendly. With a resolution new to herself, she went up to Godfrey and said, "'If you are going to the town, let me walk with you, cousin Godfrey. It is getting so dark.' She felt as if an evil necessity, a thing in which man must not believe, were driving her. But the poor child was not half so deceitful inside as the words seemed to her issuing from her lips. It was such a relief to be assured Godfrey had not seen Tom that she felt as if she could forego the sight of Tom for evermore. Her better feelings rushed back, her old confidence and reverence, and, in the altogether nebulo-chaotic condition of her mind, she felt as if, in his turn, Godfrey had just appeared for her deliverance. "'I am not going to the town, Letty,' he answered. "'I came to meet you, and we will go home together. It is no use waiting for the rain to stop, and about as little to put up an umbrella. I have brought your waterproof, and we must just take it as it comes.' The wind was up again, and the next moment Letty, on Godfrey's arm, was struggling with the same storm she had so lately encountered leaning on Tom's, while Tom was only too glad to be left alone on the floor of the dismal hut, whence he did not venture to rise for some time, lest any the most improbable thing should happen, to bring Mr. Warder back. He was as mortally afraid of being discovered as any young thief in a farmer's orchard. He had a dreary walk back to the public house where he had stabled his horse, but he trudged it cheerfully, brooding with delight on Letty's beauty, and her lovely confidence in Tom Helmer, a personage whom he had begun to feel nobody trusted as he deserved. "'Poor child,' he said to himself. He as well as Godfrey patronized her. "'What a doleful walk home she will have with that stuck-up old bachelor fellow!' Nor, indeed, was it a very comfortable walk home she had, although Godfrey talked all the way, as well as a headwind full of rain would permit. A few weeks ago she would have thought the walk and the talk and everything delightful. But after Tom's airy converse on the same level with herself, Godfrey sounded, indeed, wise, very wise, but dull, so dull. 
it is true the suspicion hardly awake enough to be troublous lay somewhere in her that in godfrey's talk there was a value of which in tom's there was nothing but then it was not wisdom letty was in want of she thought but somebody to be kind to her as kind as she should like somebody though she did not say this even to herself to pet her a little and humour her and not require too much of her physically letty was not in the least lazy but she did not enjoy being forced to think much she could think and to no very poor purpose either but as yet she had no hunger for the possible results of thought and how then could she care to think seated on the edge of her bed weary and wet and self-accused she recalled and pondered and after her faculty compared the two scarce comparable men until the voice of her aunt calling her to make haste and come to tea made her start up and in haste remove her drenched garments the old lady imagined from her delay she was out of temper because she had sent for her home but when she appeared she was so ready so attentive and so quick to help that a little repentant she said to herself really the girl is very good-natured as if then she first discovered the fact but thornwick could never more to letty feel like a home not at peace with herself she could not be in rhythmic relation with her surroundings the next day the old manner of life began again but alas it was only the old manner it was not the old life that was gone for ever like an old sunset or an old song and could not be recalled from the dead we may have better but we cannot have the same god only can have the same god grant our new may enwrap our old letty laboured more than ever to lay hold of the lessons to his mind so genial and hers bringing forth more labour than fruit which godfrey set before her but success seemed further from her than ever she was now all the time aware of a weight an oppression which seemed to belong to the task but was in reality her self-dissatisfaction she was like a poor hebrew set to make brick without straw but the egyptian that had brought her into bondage was the feebleness of her own will now and then would come a break a glow of beauty a gleam of truth for a moment she would forget herself for a moment a shining pool would flash on the clouded sea of her life presently her heart would send up a fresh mist the light would fade and vanish and the sea lie dusky and sad not seldom reproaching herself with having given tom cause to think unjustly of her guardians she would try harder than ever to please her aunt and the small personal services she had been in the way of rendering to godfrey were now ministered with the care of a devotee not once should he miss a button from a shirt or find a sock insufficiently darned but even this conscience of service did not make her happy duty itself could not where faith was wanting where the heart was not at one with those to whom the hand were servants she would cry herself to sleep and rise early to be sad she resolved at last and seemed to gain strength and some peace from the resolve to do all in her power to avoid tom and certainly not once did she try to meet him not with him she could resist him thus it went on her aunt saw that something was amiss and watched her without attempt at concealment which added greatly to letty's discomfort but the only thing her keenness discovered was that the girl was forwardly eager to please godfrey and the conviction began to grow that she was indulging the impudent presumption of being in love with her peerless cousin then maternal indignation misled her into the folly of dropping hints that should put godfrey on his guard men were so easily taken in by designing girls she did not say much but she said a good deal too much for her own ends when she caused her fancy to present itself to the mind of godfrey he had not failed no one could have failed to observe the dejection that had for some time ruled every feature and expression of the girl's countenance 
Again and again he had asked himself whether she might not be fancying him displeased with her, for he knew well that, becoming more and more aware of what he counted his danger, he had kept of late stricter guard than ever over his behavior. But, watching her now with the misleading light of his mother's lantern, nor, quite unwilling, I am bound to confess, that the thing might be as she implied, he became by degrees convinced that she was right. So far as this, perhaps, the man was pardonable, with a mother to cause him to err. But, for what followed, punishment was inevitable. He had a true and strong affection for the girl, but it was an affection as from conscious high to low, an affection that is not unmixed with patronage, a bad thing, far worse than it can seem to the heart that indulges it. He still recoiled, therefore, from the idea of such a leveling of himself as he counted it would be to show her anything like the love of a lover. All pride is more or less mean, but one pride may be grander than another, and Godfrey was not herein proud in any grand way. Good fellow as he was, he thought much too much of himself, and, unconsciously comparing it with Letty's, altogether overvalued his worth. Stranger than any bedfellow misery ever acquainted a man withal are the heart-fellows he carries about with him. Noble as in many ways Wardour was, and kind as to Letty he thought he always was, he was not generous toward her. He was not Prince Arthur, the knight of magnificence. Something may perhaps be allowed on the score of the early experience because of which he had resolved, pridefully it is true, never again to come under the power of a woman. It was unworthy of any man, he said, to place his peace in a hand which could thenceforth wring his whole being with agony. But— had he now brought himself as severely to task as he ought, he would have discovered that he was making no objection to the little girl's loving him, only he would not love her in the same way in return. And where was the honor in that? Doubtless, had he thus examined himself, he would have thought he meant to take care that the child's love for him should not go too far, should not endanger her peace, and that, if the thing should give her trouble, it should be his business to comfort her in it. But descend he would not— would not yet, from his pedestal, to meet the silly thing on the level ground of humanity, and the relation of the man and the woman. Something like this, I say, he would have found in his heart, horrid as it reads. That heart's action was not even, was not healthy. When in London he had ransacked Holywell Street for dainty editions of so many of his favorite authors as would make quite a little library for Letty, and on his return had commissioned a cabinet-maker in Testbridge to put together a small set of bookshelves after his own design, measured and fitted to receive them exactly, these shelves, now ready, he fastened to her wall one afternoon when she was out of the way, and filled them with the books— he never doubted that, the moment she saw them, she would rush to find him, and, when he had done, retreated, therefore, to his study, there to sit in readiness, to receive her and her gratitude with gentle kindness. When he would express the hope that she would make real friends of the spirits whose quiescence he had thus stored to her hand, and would introduce her to what Milton says in his Areopagitica concerning good books— there, for her sake, then, he sat, in mental state expectant, but sat in vain— when they met at tea, then, in the presence of his mother, with embarrassment and broken utterance, she did thank him. "'Oh, Cousin Godfrey,' she said, and ceased. Then, "'It is so much more than I deserve. I hardly dare thank you.' After another pause, with a shake of her pretty head, as if she would toss aside her hair or the tears out of her eyes, "'I don't know. I seem to have no right to thank you. I ought not to have such a splendid present. Indeed, I don't deserve it. You would not give it to me if you knew how naughty I am.' 
these broken sentences were by both mother and son altogether misinterpreted. The mother, now hearing for the first time of Godfrey's present, was filled with jealousy, and began to revolve thoughts of dire disquietude. Was the hussy actually beginning to gain her point, and steal from her the heart of her son? Was it in the girl's blood to wrong her? The father of her had wronged her. She would take care his daughter should not. She had taken a viper to her bosom. Who was she to wriggle herself into an old family and property? Had she been born to such things? She would teach her who she was. When dependents began to presume, it was time they had a lesson. Letty could not bear the sight of the books and their shelves. The very beauty of the bindings was a reproach to her. From the misery of this fresh burden, this new stirring of her sense of hypocrisy, she began to wish herself anywhere out of the house, and away from Thornwick. It was torture to her to think how she had deceived Cousin Godfrey at the hut and throughout the night, across the darkness, she felt, though she could not see, the books gazing at her, like an embodied conscience, from the wall of her chamber. Twenty times that night she started from her sleep, saying, I will go where they shall never see me, then rose with the dawn, and set herself to the hardest work she could find. The next day was Sunday, and they all went to church. Letty felt that Tom was there too, but she never raised her eyes to glance at him. He had been looking out in vain for a sight of her, now from the oak-tree, now from his bay mare's back, as he haunted the roads about Thornwick, now from the window of the little public-house where the path across the fields joined the main road to Testbridge, but not once had he caught a glimpse of her. He had seated himself where he could not fail to see if she were in the Thornwick pew. How ill she looked! His heart swelled with indignation. "'They are cruel to her,' he said. "'This is plain. Poor girl, they will kill her. She is a pearl in the oyster-maw of Thornwick.' This will never do. I must see her somehow. If at this crisis Letty had but a real friend to strengthen and advise her, much suffering might have been spared her, for never was there a more teachable girl. She was indeed only too ready to be advised, too ready to accept for true whatever friendship offered itself. None but the friend who will strengthen us to stand is worthy of the name. Such a friend Mary would have been, but Letty did not yet know what she needed. The unrest of her conscience made her shrink from one who was sure to side with that conscience and help it to trouble her. It was sympathy Letty longed for, not strength, and therefore she was afraid of Mary. She came to see her as she had promised the Sunday after that disastrous visit, but the weather was still uncertain and gusty, and she found both her and Godfrey in the parlor. Nor did Letty give her a chance of speaking to her alone. The poor girl had now far more on her mind that needed help than when she went in search of it, but she would seek it no more from her. For, the more she thought, the surer she felt that Mary would insist on her making a disclosure of the whole foolish business to Mrs. Wardour, and would admit neither her own fear nor her aunt's harshness as reason sufficient to the contrary. More than that, thought Letty, I can't be sure she wouldn't go in spite of me and tell her all about it. And what would become of me then? I should be worse off a hundred times than if I had told her myself. End of chapter 10 The Heath and the Hut Recording by Jean Bascom, Potomac, Maryland